It's said handover of care is one of the most perilous procedures in medicine, and when carried out improperly, can be a major contributory factor to subsequent error and harm to patients. This is true also of clinicians seeking remote clinical advice. Paramedics and pre-hospital clinicians are in a rare position where we often find we operate without the ability to seek direct senior oversight and physical review of our patients. This means that if we're in a tricky situation about what to do, the only lifeline we have to help is phone a friend. There can be a real knack, however, to getting the most out of these phone calls, from how you prepare and deliver your information, to considering the human factors affecting the remote advisors. We discuss it all this month, so the only thing left to decide is who you're going to call, and hope that you go somewhere where you've got decent signal. Because there's nothing more annoying than... General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name is Josh. I'm Simon. And I'm Alex. And this week, we are talking about remote clinical support and top cover. So why have we chosen this topic, Josh? This is something that I do a reasonable amount in my job, both uh, seeking remote clinical support uh, to to assist with difficult situations, but also uh, providing it, whether it be to cruise on the road with conveyance decisions or critical care support, uh, or if it's in my other role as a uh, national clinical advisor for St John. I've, I've found that it's quite a nuanced thing to do, and it's not something that I was ever particularly taught in university i don't know about you guys and actually as you advance in your practice shared decision making becomes far more of a cornerstone to your clinical practice and and it's a cornerstone to safe clinical practice in my opinion often for for paramedics in the environments that we work in particularly in the ambulance service our only opportunity and our only choice to seek senior clinical opinion will be remotely via phone So it's really important that us particularly have the ability to understand the boundaries of remote clinical support, but also really good at optimising the delivery of that information to help the remote advisor, as well as understanding the the limitations that that come along with it. So that's why I wanted to talk about it. uh, And I think it's something that hopefully people can, can benefit from a bit of insight into. Yeah, I think this is a really, a really good topic. It's something that I have to do in my role now, probably in a slightly different um, respect. But yeah, really, really important. And as you say, something that we don't often um, really get much support in. So I think it's going to be a really useful talk, a really useful topic. And um, yeah, let's get started. So when we're talking about remote advice, I think a good place to start would probably be the the sort of boundaries of of remote advice. And um, Simon, what are your thoughts on the sort of ethical boundaries of remote advice? One thing I think we should absolutely make crystal clear is that the clinician that is on scene and is face-to-face with a patient has to retain clinical primacy. So by that, I mean that is the responsibility for patient care. Obviously, shared decision-making supports that and it is good to bring other people into getting advice and your assessment of risk however it's not a case of buck passing and i think from my experience both when i was in the ambulance services as a specialist paramedic and as part of my master's training when we did remote clinical advice it comes up quite a lot where actually people want us to take responsibility for the patient and that's not what remote advice is about have you guys had similar experiences to that where either either when you were kind of more junior clinicians I know I did I, I you know I wanted someone else to take responsibility and also I've had clinicians phone me and want to take responsibility what what's your kind of experiences of that so I have definitely been guilty of that and, and also seen that definitely when I was a junior clinician I on several occasions had called GPs up not really needing support making a decision uh, just feeling that by having talked to them it was somehow taking clinical risk off me and and I, I felt I needed that to stay safe 
Of course, sharing your decision with somebody if they agree with your decision is is good if you need it. And it does add additional rigor to that decision if anything were to go wrong. But yeah, you're completely right. Clinical primacy remains with the clinician seeing the patient. And there's a there's a lot of dogma, isn't there, particularly in the ambulance service of, you know, I've heard sayings of put another clinician between you and the coroner and things like that. And and uh, if you're arranging out of our GP appointment or, or chat it over with the GP, then that sort of absolves you of, of anything going wrong. And, and that's not what this is about. And that's that's probably relatively immature clinical decision making. What this is about is is sharing that decision and, and getting advice if you need it, but completely owning that decision and, and completely re- retaining responsibility for that patient. Yeah, so I, I completely agree. I've uh, definitely seen this. And when I, when I speak to uh, people that are coming to the end of their NQP period, you know, they're just about to perhaps move up into into sort of Banzix where I like to remind them, you know, we're one of, if if not the only, but certainly one of the few healthcare professions who make admission or discharge decisions essentially completely in isolation. Oftentimes there's one, maybe two people at the scene with the patient, and there's nothing wrong with seeking a a second clinical opinion or a senior clinical opinion um, to just help guide that decision making but yeah it's it's very important to remember that it's still your name on the uh on the paperwork and it's it's still you that has the primacy for the patient i think it's it sort of goes back to that old uh, discussion of defensive versus defensible practice doesn't it yeah definitely and that you know that happens daily in hospital where i work i will have juniors that come to me i will go to consultant colleagues i will ask specialities for their opinion uh, I'll ask other healthcare professionals for their opinion within their specialist areas. So in all areas of the NHS, this happens frequently. And I kind of feel sometimes the ambulance service don't do it as much as maybe they should. I think it's actually a really good thing to phone other people and, you know, just ask their opinion within their specialism, you know. And again, it's not about them taking responsibility. It's about just getting a second specialist opinion that backs up your own thought process. Is it worth clarifying on that note simon the difference between seeking remote clinical advice in this context and when you're perhaps speaking to someone to make a referral that's a really good point alex that actually phoning someone and asking them for their advice is not the same as referring them a patient it might be that that person you do end up referring to that person but it it doesn't have to be it can just be for advice they are two different processes because obviously if you're making a referral, then you are kind of asking that healthcare professional or that medic to take responsibility for that patient. So that might be two, two examples would be if I had a child and I was phoning pediatrics to kind of get some shared decision making on discharging a child, I might, you know, make that phone call and say, you know, I, I've assessed this patient. I found this. I feel that I can leave this child at home. I just wanted to discuss it. And you make an agreed plan. Whereas actually, if it's, I've come to this child, I've assessed them, I feel they need to be in hospital, I'd like you to accept the patient and for them to be admitted to a ward. That's a, a different conversation. So I know, I know a lot of people feel they can't refer patients direct. And whilst I don't necessarily agree with that concept, I think you can make a referral as per your HCPC standards. You absolutely 100% can seek clinical advice because they are two different entities. So never feel worried about... Uh, accessing shared decision making by phoning anyone you need to to get the right advice you need for that patient yeah i completely agree with you and i've always said to students when you know or or anyone really that i've talked about the subject with when you're phoning it's vital really to to have an idea of, of what it is you're actually looking for when you make that call it's good to have to have an idea before you start the call if you have the you need the information handy but you also need to have an idea of what it is that you're actually calling for and josh i i believe you've got some thoughts about uh, the types of remote advice sort of conversations that we might be having just on that point i would say probably that is the most important takeaway point from this episode is you have to know what you want from the remote clinical support and probably the biggest barrier I've found being on the other end of the phone as the remote advisor is not really understanding or it not being clear what the person talking to me wants and so they garble all this information at you 
and you're not clear perhaps at all or right until the very end what they actually want you to do with all that information. So absolutely know why you're phoning and know what you want the advisor to help you with. And the less complex that dilemma is, the better. In in that it can still be relatively complex, but ideally just one or two problems that, that you've identified that you need support with, not this and this and this and this. So we'll expand on that a a little bit more when we come on to talking about optimising that phone call. But broadly, I think it's quite good to have an idea about what type of conversation you're about to have. That sounds a little bit odd, but broadly, I, I find myself having and have had four different themes or different types of conversation uh, with with remote clinical advisors. So the first is probably the the most common and, and the one that people think of the most. And this is that sounding board conversation. So it would be a conversation that this is the patient I have. This is what I think's wrong with them. This is what I want to do. Does that sound reasonable to you as the senior clinician or the remote clinical advisor? Or is there anything that you would do differently or that I haven't considered in, in this situation? And and that probably includes decisions where you need to seek senior support to step outside of a guideline as well. So I know a lot of ambulance service guidelines are written that if you're an NQP, then you need senior support to to do certain things outside of that guideline. So that very much would sit within these sounding board conversations. They're very much slower conversations. They're a little bit more thought out. You've had more time before the phone call to think and prepare about what what you're about to do. And you've probably got a full clinical assessment and and history to provide to the the advisor. Yeah, and I think when you're having this sort of conversation. I just want to go back to one thing that you said there, Josh, there was a little phrase that I think is really key when it comes to this type of of conversation. And it was when you said, does that sound reasonable to you? Uh, It doesn't necessarily have to be that exact wording, but the, the, the point being, you're not ringing to ask them what to do again you're not ringing to ask them to take responsibility and make the decision you, you you've reached a decision you've got a plan in mind and you're ringing to ask their opinion is there and as you said is there anything different you would do and i think that's really important because it's it's a sounding board not someone that's there to to take that decision away from you so the second conversation that you might end up having is remote clinical support to help make an emergency decision so this is in contrast to the sounding board type conversation it's more than likely going to be a a problem or dilemma with a significant time pressure to it so it, it might be slightly more difficult to have the lengthy conversation uh that you might otherwise have with the sounding board one uh and and the way that you deliver that information is very much going to be you know this is who i am this is the problem or dilemma i have I want to do option A, my colleague wants to do option B, what do you think? So it, it needs to be quite concise information and it needs to, you, you still need to have enough detail, but it, it needs to be concise and to the point with a very clear reason for why you're calling. And this is the kind of conversation that in my role now that that we tend to end up having with with our top cover support network it's much easier if you know the person at the end of the line because they're able to have a little bit more trust in you and they know you personally as a clinician. That is perhaps one of the drawbacks of trying to have one of these type of conversations with someone you don't know. But it's absolutely the the type of conversation that, that you can have uh, and it is potentially something that you might do via the resource red phone with uh, the receiving consultants uh, at hospital if you've got a protracted conveyance time. Just giving another common pre example of this, and I don't know if you two agree, I would say around um, things like uh, calling and stopping resuscitation. I imagine there's times when, you know, different clinicians are seen might might disagree on that. Um, that's my experience anyway. I don't know about uh, about yourselves, but... Um, I've, had a, I've had a situation where the, the area in which I work is close to the border of another trust. Uh, and I've had a situation where during a resuscitation, there was conflicting opinion on which set of SOPs should be followed. Uh, so that that was quite difficult. And actually, our trust now um, have a remote triage line, uh, a, a sort of trauma and resus um, line specifically for these type of questions, which is which is really useful. 
So yeah, definitely have a look at the sort of options that are out there. That sounds like a really complex situation, Alex. When you've got two different trusts, two different sets of guidelines and policies, that that yeah, that really sounds tricky. And I, I, I completely agree. Like, I mean, that happens in hospital all the time. You know, we might kind of get our consultants, we might call medical consultants, ITU consultants, and we, we might have a conversation. You know, as a group of three or four people, sometimes bring in some of the nurse specialists in that area, and you add people to the conversation it becomes more of a consensus it's much easier to make the decision i think that's a really good way of 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 you know and exactly what this podcast is about about how to the best way to get get help basically i i won't go into uh into any details takes off on a on a big long tangent but yeah the the outcome of that was um there was a disagreement so i as the um kind of senior person there i suppose i made the decision to go with the prolonged treatment option rather than stand arguing over the patient we decided to go with the with the more prolonged treatment option and um and uh discuss it afterwards which i think you know if if in that situation do the right thing for the patient the thing that means everyone can go home thinking that they've done everything that they could possibly do and uh, and those conversations can be had afterwards including conversations with with that clinical support as well to bring us back onto the topic don't be afraid to contact people making because sometimes these emergency decisions are made under pressure and they can be made quite quickly Uh, so don't be afraid to go back and talk to people and talk through those decisions in in a more timely fashion and and talk through why the decision was what it was and why people had those opinions that that is mega helpful i had a a chap recently who i'd been given some advice to it was a, it was a multiple set of of phone calls throughout the the middle of the night, and he actually uh, emailed me the next morning to to let me know what the outcome was. And I thought that was one a, a real professional courtesy and really kind of him to do. Um, but but two, it was really good from my perspective as the remote advisor to to understand how that that then played out uh, and and uh, factor into my own reflection on the job. So absolutely, if you can do that, that that's mega helpful. So the third conversation that you might end up having is is one I've called total clinical support. And so th- this is a little bit of a, a tricky one in that it's probably a conversation that you, you feasibly might end up having in that this is the patient I have. I have absolutely no idea what to do. Can you please help? And it might seem like this is a bit of a sounding board situation, but but I think it's innately a different conversation. And whilst there is definitely a place for these type of remote clinical advice conversations, you really, really need to question what it is you want to get out of this conversation. Because as someone at the other end of a phone, if I had a clinician call me up and and essentially say, this is what I've got, I have no idea what it is or what to do, my, my risk appetite goes as small as it's physically possible to do and and i'm definitely going to advise towards the most risk mitigating decision which is probably go and and have a you know arrange a face-to-face meeting with a senior clinician so arrange an out-of-hours appointment or probably go to a and e because the because by the very nature of the fact that you're saying oh I don't know what to do. Absolutely fine. You shouldn't feel bad about that. We all have situations where we don't know what to do. But as a remote advisor, there's very little to work with there. So you really have to to consider what you're expecting to get out of that conversation because it's highly likely that it'll just be, well, take them to a senior clinician to find out what's going on. I think that's a, that's a very valid way of looking at it, Josh. But I think another aspect to these type of conversations, the, these are how I would quantify a reasonable amount of the phone calls that I take. Now, you know, we're calling them total clinical support, but don't forget there's other aspects to to clinical care. Now, I, I often receive phone calls regarding some really complex situations, things particularly around capacity, uh, access to patients. You know, we've we've got a patient who is on the end of a on the end of an intercom and and sounds intoxicated, but we don't know if they've got capacity. They're not letting us in. You know, should we gain access? Should we get police? What do we do? So so in some situations, I do agree with you. If you if you're calling up about a a purely medically clinical issue and you have absolutely no idea what to do as you say there's nothing wrong with that and i certainly have been in that situation myself in the past but yeah you should be aware that that is going to 
most likely end up with a, a, a very low threshold for risk. But it is completely appropriate to, to call for support, you know, whether it's someone like me or someone in a, in a different, in a different role, if you have got a very complex or unusual situation and, and you need someone to talk through in, in that kind of total clinical support point of view, I, I'm just keen that people don't come away from that thinking that these total clinical support conversations are a bad thing and that they shouldn't be had because in some situations they, they are appropriate, but I would say they are more than often those are the the complex or very unusual cases that we come across Com- completely and and i just want to sort of clarify what i'm what, what i'm saying in that so, some of those cases you just described there like the, the classic one is the capacity those really awkward situations where where there's a lot of ambiguity and it can feel like you don't know a lot you, you still know what the dilemma is and and so i think that is Although you have far less information than than what I was describing in sounding board, I think you're more towards that sounding board center of the uh, of the spectrum. But but yes, absolutely, you can you can always phone for support. That is what it is there for, and and I wouldn't want to dissuade anyone from doing that. But uh, but I, I think it it comes back to doesn't it that question that we said at the start? You need to know what you want from the advisor if you've got questions in your mind like i don't know if this person has capacity or i think this person doesn't have capacity and i don't know what to do with that that is a very different situation to present to the advisor than i don't know what's wrong with this patient the history doesn't make sense uh, and i have haven't got the foggiest why they've called 999 or or what's going on that's that's sort of more what i was leaning towards and then the final sort of theme or conversation bracket that you might find yourself making for remote decision support is what I've called error mitigation. And this happens. I've had this phone call. It's particularly uncomfortable, but actually uh, credit to the officer advising me on the, on the other end of the phone. Um, it, it was a really beneficial uh, and, and rewarding conversation in the end. But this is the kind of conversation of, look, I've made an error how do I mitigate and minimize the impact of this error? So it's not reporting it, it's not doing a datix or whatever you use in your system. It's, look, here's the problem. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's I've, I've given the wrong drug or something like that. How, how do I minimize the impact of this error that I've made and get this patient to a place of safety now? And then we can deal with managing that error and reporting it and doing all of the other things that we need to do. And I would imagine, Alex, in your role, maybe this is a type of conversation that you have more than I do. Not 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 suggesting yeah, that is- you're constantly making errors and, and you're on that side of the, of the conversation. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. The wrong side of the conversation. I'm, yeah, <laughs> la, la, na, now, nowadays I'm more on the other side of the conversation. Um, but since you mentioned it, I, I have been on the other side of this situation, actually, and I have made an error and... You know, luckily, nothing, nothing too serious. Really, I, I think you covered it really well. Um, I, I think yes, please do make use of your kind of leadership team, management team, you know, whatever you want to call them, because really, that's what I hope that that we are there for in in that role. The the main things I would say are don't be embarrassed. It, it is embarrassing, but people make mistakes, and you're not expected to be some sort of clinical autonomous robot um you know we we understand that people do make mistakes the really important thing is your duty of candor so by all means have these conversations but it's very helpful if you if you from the outset bear in mind your duty of candor so you must inform the patient you must inform the receiving hospital or or receiving clinicians please please don't make these the mistake that i did and make this phone call once you've wrapped up your uh, clinical um, portion and then have to go back and knock on the patient's door and explain that you've made an error. So yeah, just remember your duty of candor. Try not to be too embarrassed about it. Remember, we all make mistakes. And yeah, this this is a really important type of conversation to have. I just just want to second that point, Alex. You know, mistakes has happened in my career. It has happened in everyone's career. And in fact, I would go as far as to say that if you haven't made ever made a mistake in a semi-long career then you're not practicing properly or or you or you just haven't noticed them 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, which is even worse. So they're a really good opportunity for learning. No one is perfect. Medicine cannot be perfect. I think that actually we have to accept that we're going to make mistakes. And as long as you handle them correctly and you learn from them, that is all that we can ask. Um, and people need to kind of start to become comfortable with the fact that this is going to happen at some point in their career and you can't risk mitigate everything. Okay, so that's the four, generally speaking, the four types of remote clinical advice that we're likely to be sort of seeing and and, and having those com- those sort of conversations. But really, I think what we should talk about is the best way of optimizing the, the way that we ask for advice. And Josh, you put a really nice little sort of, I don't know if this is a quote or a saying or something you've come up with, but I really like it. Asking for advice poorly is asking for poor advice. And I think that's that's a really good phrase. Did you did you make that up? Uh I can't remember, so let's say, yeah, why not? <laughs> You'd take the credit for that one. <laughs> Fair enough. And until someone claims that um, it's mine. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, I, re- I really like that. I think that's, you know, as asking for advice poorly is asking for poor advice. So I think that's, that's a really, um, good way of summing it up. But really when you're, when you're asking for advice, as we've sort of already said, your starting point really is what do you want from this conversation? Some of the worst remote advice calls that you can get are when the caller doesn't know what they want from the call and they, they don't really know what resolution it is that they're after. They just don't know really what it is they want and a really good way of ensuring that you try to avoid that firstly is to have have an idea beforehand and have the information to hand so using a structured format like an isbar a widely used and accepted format for for handovers will allow a better flow and it will it will mean that your narrative flows and you're less likely to get interrupted because people will will realize that you are using a standard format and the information that they need is going to is going to be there um because as someone who has taken a fair amount of phone calls and a reasonable amount of handovers during my career one of the worst things you can do is really to waffle because if you're anything like me my attention span is fairly short and so i need the information that i need to to help you make that decision or to help support your decision without getting bogged down in a load of details if i hear somebody using the isbar format i immediately settle into my seat and i know that i'm not gonna have to say anything because by by virtue of the fact that they're giving you the information correctly you have increased faith that it's going to have everything that you need i just add that um, if you are phoning especially like primary care so primary care clinicians and gps we all know they have an extremely limited amount of time and probably have with your phone call interrupted their clinic or them doing their routine tasks so it has to be quick. It has to be precise and to the point. So I completely agree with what you just said, Alex, that get to that that point really quickly using a structured format because they need key information quickly and not not the waffle. Yeah, so so quick quick is important, but it's it's just to be very clear, it's quick in terms of quickly getting to the information, not speaking quickly, because another really, really difficult thing is when people talk too quickly, you're, you, people are very keen to communicate information and they, blah, 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 they they talk far too quickly. And remember that, you know, always, always try and remember that the other person on the other end of the phone is writing this down they're all if they're, if they're old like me they're probably using a, a pen made from a dinosaur bone but you know they'll either be typing putting it on ipads whatever it is your kids do nowadays but yeah the other person's going to be writing it down so if you're talking too fast for someone to make notes then they're not going to get everything you need so so quickly get to the information but you don't need to necessarily speak quickly yeah bre- brevity is key isn't it and and being succinct i think this is probably the biggest mistake i made in in handovers whether that be resource handovers or handovers on the phone or asking for advice is when i was a junior clinician i i felt the need to sell to the person at the end of the phone that i'd done my job correctly and that i'd done, that i'd been thorough and so i'd almost verbally give them my per- my paperwork with all the pertinent negatives with the full systems exams that were in retrospect unrelated to the bottom diagnosis that I'd come to and that's not what this conversation is about 
you you need to give the relevant information to help them make that decision and that might include pertinent negatives but only if they are very very pertinent what you probably don't need to do is tell them that you've done this amazing cranial nerve exam with absolutely no diplopia and no dystidocokinesia and all that kind of stuff when when it's a chest pain so uh, you're, you're not telling them your paperwork you are having a clinical discussion with them and you're giving them enough information to help them come to a similar decision or, or help you make the decision that you're going to pose to them how many times did you have to practice saying that yeah what the what the uh what the listeners don't know is that i've cut about 50 attempts at saying dystidocokinesis haven't i <laughs> only only 50 <laughs> And the thing is, is that actually, even when we're talking about a neurological condition, you don't need to say it. You know, you can just say they have no neurology. Just, just, just summarize. No, yeah, but it, it it took me so long to learn how to spell this dodecokinesis that I use it in my paperwork when I can. Yeah, you've got to give him some credit. Um, not only can he spell it, he can also pronounce it. So you know, he's going to use Gosh, it. Every I, I, I don't know what it means, but uh, it looks pretty good. <laughs> Josh needs to know that the GP thinks he's clever. Absolutely. <laughs> So let's very quickly then, let's just break down the the ISBAR format that we're talking about. So so the I in ISBAR is identify. Identify yourself, who you are, and importantly, your clinical grade. And I know, Simon, this is a, a point that you um, have a have a hot take on. Oh, but, yeah. but but about people being aware of your uh, of your clinical grade, and, and I know you, you you know you're very firmly of the opinion that that patients should also be made aware. I, d- I don't think I think that's outside the scope of what we're talking about. But certainly when you're getting clinical advice, uh, particularly over the phone, then it's important that people know the clinical grade that that that, that they're speaking to. And as as we learned on my Jessup command course, you should always avoid TLAs, which is three letter acronyms. If you're speaking to someone who does not work in the ambulance service or does not work and isn't familiar with your system, they may not understand, for example, NQP, but they might understand newly qualified paramedic or not to be too controversial, but perhaps something along the lines of junior paramedic in the sense of, you know, junior doctor, junior paramedic be careful to make sure that the person does understand who you are and and your level perhaps one of the the more important things with that is okay if you're speaking to internal people in the ambulance service you're speaking to an ambulance service advisor or or a ccp or doctor from your hems unit then they should get that and they should know sometimes the restrictions that are put on nqps but i think this is the point in the conversation if you're calling a, a patient's gp or you're calling an out of hours gp and the reason that you're calling has to do with there's a clinical guideline that as a junior member of staff or as an NQP, you have to seek senior advice. It might be pertinent for them to know that uh, as part of the reason that you're calling them. Uh, otherwise, you, you might end up in a situation of it coming back to that point of, well, why are you calling me? What do you want? Yeah, I think this is the point to make that clear if that is part of uh, the reason that you're calling it does become quite tricky because when i speak to my colleagues in primary care they are kind of correct that actually general practice isn't commissioned to provide ambulance service senior oversight and top cover effectively which is obviously what this whole, whole podcast is about calling them as a registered paramedic to help you manage a patient with a point is is one thing calling them for too much decision making and and top cover is a kind of a a separate issue which i think gps have always done in good faith for us it's just worth remembering that um if you need something from them they're worth calling if 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 not and you need like kind of senior advice ideally we should be going for our own service lines to do that if it's available yeah that's a very reasonable point yeah, and I think it leads us quite nicely on to the S of ISBAR. So I is identify, S is situation. And as we've sort of said, really all the way through this, a brief rundown of the situation and why you're calling, what is it that you want them to help with specifically? And this is really crucial for for those time pressure calls, perhaps those, those emergency decisions that you need. It's really important because you need the advisor to to really hone in on on the key bits of information to help them answer that question. And this is where that that brevity we need the the pertinent points put across clearly 
to elect to allow that decision to be made yeah i don't think we can stress this point enough for for someone on the other end of that phone receiving that phone call that is one of the most crucial bits of information i look for uh, because then for the rest of what you're saying i'm then targeting in on the the end decision that you're asking me to make so really really useful to put into perspective all of the other information that you're about to give me it's the one thing that's done the most wrong by people because people structure it like they structure their paperwork. They'll go, oh, hi, doctor, uh, it's so-and-so. Um, I've got a patient who's da 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 and they go off and, you know, and that's when you lose people. So this point that you both made really well is absolutely critical. And and, and there's no good way to rectify it, really, if, if, you, if you don't start like this because as as the advisor what i really don't want is if you're mid spiel to stop you and go hang hang on hang on um why are you calling me what what do you need help with because that immediately gets other people's back up they're like oh i was just getting to that if you didn't interrupt me but it it, it really does help absorb all the information that you're giving if i know you're wanting to discharge this patient and you want to know if that's a reasonable plan or not and that in itself is another reason to uh, to have these things written down um, because sometimes people are going to interrupt you and it's much easier to get on track and to remain in a structured format if you have these things written down ready to refer to rather than kind of being thrown off your game and losing track of where you are. Oh God, there's, so, there's nothing more annoying than when you're they're mid-flow and then they go and uh, their observations are... Hang on. Yeah... It's around here somewhere. There's nothing more (laughs) annoying than than when you've just been woken up at three in the morning and that's going on. So absolutely prep prep this down and and write this down. Woken up. Woken up at three in the morning. You can tell tell the sort of life you're living. I want to make make this very clear. This is when I'm doing on-call stuff from home, not when I'm I'm on paid shift. (laughs) This is is voluntary on-call stuff. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's not start that rumour and uh... <laughs> Oh mate, the rumour's been out there for a long time since you were a student. And it's not um... a rumour either. <laughs> <laughs> Right then, let's move let's move on. So we've we've covered the I and the S. B is pretty simple, it's background. So that's your history of presenting complaint, relevant past medical history, uh, not forgetting family history, which can be very, very important, as we've previously discussed, relevant medication history, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. There's not really much else to uh, to add about that. It's it's your background, same as as you do in really any handover. Relevant is the key, I think. Yes, and I think you've hit yeah, the nail on relevant. the head. Yeah. And and to be to be quite honest, I would say that is the case for for any handover and really for paperwork as well. You know, why are we documenting things that aren't relevant? But anyway, that that that's a that's a bit of a sidebar. So the A in your ISBAR is assessment. So your relevant findings and pertinent negatives. You're not justifying yourself. You're not writing your paperwork and as we've already said we've covered this point quite a lot if you're ironically we've covered this point a lot if you're too verbose people will lose interest when you're taking a handover you have a a relatively short amount of attention that you can uh, that you can apply to it so just make sure everything that you're giving your obs and everything are are all relevant but they probably not going to need every piece of information you've got at the point of the initial handover and anything they do need to know they will probably ask you let's talk about the r then so that so the last part of r is bar is recommendation and and this is really important what what do you want to do what do what what is your thoughts on 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 where we should go with this patient what is your plan now you may find that you don't have a plan and and that that's okay but just communicate that and why you're not sure and just remember it's no one expects you to necessarily know everything but if you are making that conversation really with no idea where you're going you've got to question what the purpose of that phone call is so so generally i i would say if you're if you're phoning particularly if we're talking about one of these sounding board type of discussions phone with with an idea in mind with a plan in mind that you would like to discuss and that's that's where this point comes in Especially when speaking to uh, like primary care, if you sound really confident in your delivery, you say, it's so-and-so, I've got this patient, I've found this, I think they need antibiotics. Is that something that we could arrange through yourself? Most GPs will just go, yeah, that sounds really reasonable. I'll get that sorted for you. Thank you very much for calling me. 
And it's actually yeah, a really and- slick conversation. It just has to be done really well. And another thing I would say is really just about language. People sometimes get a bit funny about the use of medical words. And, you know, Josh, you obviously know some some really big, impressive medical words, as, as we've uh, as we found out. But actually, there's there's really there's a good there's a good reason for using them. And it really comes across that you you have a good understanding of what you're talking about. If you're able to use language that the the recipient is familiar with, that's going to create a, a good sense of confidence that that you really understand what you're talking about, and it will create a sense of confidence in the plan that you're proposing. I just want to make a laughing point that Josh hasn't even got that word right. <laughs> What's wrong with it? That's how you say it. Distidocokinesis. No, it's not. It's distidocokinesis. What? Oh, if I'm going to have to go back and cut all that. I probably taught it wrong. Yeah, you did teach me that. <laughs> Dis what? Dis no, I, no. I, I'm not going to use you as the authority on how to pronounce or spell stuff. You can say distidokinesia. I'm not sure how you said it. I suppose it could be co because you could pronounce like it could be ch- no. It's probably co actually because if you say yeah, thanks. If you were saying coli. No, did you say the co? I thought you said distidokinesia. No, distidokinesia. Distido. Yeah, that, no, that probably is right because actually it's, it's the lack of right. yeah, So, co, so do you, you right. do you want to do your apology on record now to the people or? <laughs> we'll just edit this. No, part. no, no, we won't. <laughs> I try to take you like a fool. <laughs> I think I taught you all. I think, I think I'm going to release this segment as its own little podcast. Uh, right? Would you like to carry on, Alex? So the very last thing in this little segment about the uh, the ISBAR is not really part of the ISBAR, but just to expect a readback when when you've given all this information across. The person who's receiving it is almost certainly going to want to go back through it with you. That's not in the sense of questioning what you've said, but it is making sure that they have that they've understood the information correctly and that they have got a good understanding of the situation. So be patient, let them finish, and if you need to, correct them after that point. Excellent. So just to summarize that then, ISPAR, identify, background, assessment, recommendation, and then obviously you expect a, a readback from the clinician you're referring to. So that's the advice for how we're going to optimize the way we ask for advice. Let's have a little chat about the limitations of remote clinical advice, because I do think there are some limitations. The the first thing I think is really important is that that clinician who you are speaking to for advice cannot see the patient. So that does somewhat limit their clinical gestalt. We all know how important it is to be able to see patients. You know, you can often tell someone's pain, whether someone's short of breath. We walk into rooms often and we make kind of quick decisions. This patient's sick, they're not sick. And that that person on the phone can't see that. So there's a big limit there about what they can see. So it's kind of down to us to get as much information as we can across that's relevant, but that can limit, uh, limit that. Coming off of that, it may actually lead them down the wrong path or the information that you give them can lead them down the wrong path so I I could very confidently go oh this patient's got this this and this and I found this this and this and I want you to do this and it sounds really reasonable but actually you could be completely off on your own history on your own examination and the situation could be very difficult so remember that that person can only give advice on what information you are giving them so your information needs to be accurate your examination and your history needs to be thorough there's certain other human factors so for example the clinician that is giving you uh, advice are they in the right environment are they concentrating are they alert they might have just woken up particularly if it's josh (laughs) uh yeah particularly if it's josh at three o'clock in the morning as you said earlier or three o'clock in the (laughs) afternoon Um, I, I I regularly remember Josh phoning me at like two o'clock in the morning asking me for advice when I've just had a sleep in my RV. Um, <laughs> See, it's not just me. It's not just me. <laughs> and it, it is it is it is a good point. The fact that actually I'm a bit sluggish when I first wake up, and I'm sure other people are as well. Are they in their the right mindset? Is this a GP who's running behind? They're they're completely overworked and overwhelmed. 
it's also different as well, isn't it? If, if, if the remote advisor that you're calling, the reason I've put this in and stressed this is because it's entering the ambulance service more and more. So our top cover line to our consultants at work, if, if we're on the night shift, you are almost certainly waking them up from home. The majority of the calls I've taken have been in the middle of the night for, for, for doing the, the national on-call stuff that I do. It really does, as, as you all know, you've just been woken up by phone call in the middle of the night. Their phone may not say that it's a remote clinical advice call. So they might be like, oh my God, is it is it my family? Is it my my mum had a fall or something like that? And And there might be all these things running through their head. They've got a dry mouth and all this kind of stuff. So it's just useful things for you to bear in mind for for what mental state the person is on the end of the phone or indeed if you've been woken up in the middle of the afternoon eh, Josh? well yes yeah if if it's between bargain hunt and cash in the attic then uh you know you're not going to get much from me and finally we need to talk about the issue of the advice that we're actually given and do we agree with that advice we talked about earlier that you remain to be the clinician on scene who has primacy and that you are responsible for the patient care and you're not passing the buck for that. So if you get senior clinical advice you don't agree with, that's a kind of tricky situation. I'd be interested to hear both of your thoughts on this, but I would kind of argue that if somebody gives you advice that you really don't think is safe, that you shouldn't follow it. But at the same time, you have phoned them for senior advice, so it's, it's quite difficult. Absolutely. Just because the person on the end of the phone says you should do a thing doesn't mean you have to do it if you're really uncomfortable. And hopefully a good advisor won't leave you feeling uncomfortable about a plan. So yes, clinical primacy remains with you. And if you think a plan is unsafe or you're uncomfortable with it, then you should you should act in, in the patient's best interest. And that might mean taking them to hospital or something like that. I think you have to really consider, like you've said, Simon, why you called them. Uh, and from a logical perspective, examining your decision making, questions could potentially be asked. Well, why have you ignored advice that you called for and that you asked for? So you, you just have to have a good think about that and uh, be comfortable that you're justified in that and potentially seek further advice. Have another conversation if you're unhappy with it. But yes, probably important to stress the point that just because the person at the end of the phone is senior to you and has said you should do something, if you think that is unsafe or not in the patient's best interests, then you can explore other avenues because clinical primacy is with you. Alex, anything you, you want to add? To, I think that's really that's a great point. Yeah, I, I mean, as, as reluctant as I am to give uh, Josh credit for anything, I think you summed that up really well, actually, Josh, in, in what you said, a good clinical advisor will will not leave you feeling uncomfortable. So really, I, I would say if, if you reach a point where you have given all of your information and the person on the other end of the phone says, no, absolutely not, there's either they have misunderstood or you have not managed to get the relevant information across, really. And I think they're they're pretty broad categories, but I think that's really it. So if you end up in a situation where you've come up with a plan that you think is reasonable and someone on the other end of the phone or the radio is saying to you, no, absolutely not, I completely disagree, my first thought would be, why? What have I failed to get across? Or or, or really, where, where is our barrier here? Is this a communication barrier? Or is this a barrier in my clinical understanding? Or have I perhaps given the information that, you know, as, as we sort of said earlier, you know, it's very easy in these situations to lead people down the wrong path. Have, have I inadvertently let my bias or given information in a way that has fed into the clinical advisor's bias? Yeah, that is my experience as uh, giving advice as an SP is when people phone you and actually like sometimes their story they're giving you is full of red flags that I've picked up on that clearly they haven't. So actually just just think to yourself, if that clinician is not seeing things eye to eye to you and they want a completely different plan, just just ask yourself why. Very rarely it's because they're lazy or can't be bothered to do something. It's usually because they've seen or thought about something or know something that maybe you're not thinking of. 
that kind of summarizes the weaknesses um, uh, and the limitations of remote clinical advice. So if we talk about the strengths of remote clinical advice. So we kind of said that them not being with you and can't see the patient is a weakness, but actually it's just as much of a strength. They're not at the risk of a late finish or not wanting to convey someone to a and because of ramping. They're not in the cold. They haven't just been, you know, maybe verbally abused by a patient. They are not necessarily under influence of potential biases that you have as the clinician on scene they they will see it with a fresh pair well say fresh pair of eyes a fresh pair of ears so that can actually be just as much as a as a strong point and it's quite good for human factors and when we think about decision making so this i i've been on both sides of this phone call a couple of times as a clinician on the road and and event medicine where the remote clinical advisor has really helped to add a layer of safety and, and I'm doing it far more receiving calls from uh, event medics who can't get an ambulance because of, of the massive delays and, and understandably the ambulance service triages patients as potentially a lower risk because they're in a place of safety with medically trained people and have people calling me up to explore if there's other avenues that they can manage a patient with and it's normally in the early hours of the morning and it's normally about an hour and a half after their duty period is finished and it's really crushing as an advisor to uh to to have to tell somebody that no probably you need to wait for an ambulance because of various factors and and ultimately you did decide and and correctly recognize that a patient was at risk of of whatever it was and, and requiring an ambulance crew and and unfortunately you know you know if if there wasn't this delay you wouldn't have considered it safe to discharge the patient so just because there is a delay it, it doesn't make it a, a safe decision if if nothing has changed and, and the patient hasn't improved and it, and it's a really difficult decision to make but but that's definitely one of the powers of of being a remote advisor is that I don't have to think about the impacts to myself that will sway my decision making uh, and and all of the horrible factors about being massively late and being out in the cold and the rain as stuff's closing up and and, and things like that and and you do feel guilty for the crews and, and you do feel guilty for the person on the end of the phone that that you're uh, you're perhaps not able to give them the answer that they wanted but ultimately it's because you can see the safer decision and you can see the right thing for the patient because of completely natural human factors that that influence us all and, and have definitely influenced me when I've been on the other side of the phone. So when we think about the limitations that we've just covered, uh, we need to start thinking about the human factors, things that might uh, improve how we can safely access remote clinical decision-making. So, Josh, do you want to talk us about things that we can do to, uh, to improve the limitations? Like with a lot of human factors things, a lot of this is just considering the possibility and thinking about it uh, and having it in your mind's eye whilst you're doing this can actually achieve quite a lot to mitigate the risk. So you've spared enough jokes at my expense about waking the the clinician up. There will never be enough jokes at your expense. fine well maybe enough for for this episode anyway so yeah if you're calling in the middle of the night if you know this person is at home or or is literally on call then then just bear in mind that you might be waking them up they might be startled their their brain might uh, take a little while to get into gear just bear in mind that they might not be in a as ready to go as you and it can be really helpful to once you've done the this is who i am and this is the situation and decision that I uh, I need support making, it can be really helpful to ask them, are you ready to receive information? Genuinely, the answer might be no, give me a second. But at least they're oriented for why you're calling and, and what decision they need to prepare themselves to make. So are you ready to receive information can be really helpful. It's a great point. My, my consultants do it all the time. They will say, is this really time critical because I don't have the bandwidth at the moment? Can you come back in 10 minutes? And most of the time you do, you can go away and come back in 10 minutes. So really good point, Josh, to, to think about, you know, is that person ready? 
The next thing to consider is whether or not you've got a bad line or or if you've got a noisy environment your side. The, the amount of times I've been called by people at festivals or at nightclubs doing nighttime economy type stuff when all you can hear is the bounding music next to them. Uh, it really doesn't make for a very useful conversation. So make sure you are in an optimum environment and you've got somewhere that's got signal. If you can use a landline, that normally results in a better connection, but make sure you're somewhere where you've got signal and and also ensure that you're in a position where you can speak privately and openly it might be that you need to be away from the patient to to have your conversation openly with the advisor but equally it might be important and powerful to have this conversation in front of the patient so if if the patient has wanted you to seek further advice or you've offered to get a second opinion it might might be really helpful for the patient and put them at ease if they can hear your side of the conversation that you've had just bear in mind if your environment is optimized to have this conversation it's not it's not really a human factors thing but just bearing in mind all of these conversations should be taking place on a recorded line i can't imagine that these days ambulance services don't have a recorded line for clinicians to use and if they really don't then that's something that you need to flag up to them. But I would imagine most NHS trusts uh, have the ability for their clinicians to access a recorded line to have these conversations. And that's a really important protective feature for you, medico-legally, were anything to go wrong. I think another professional courtesy, if you're calling outside of your organization's uh, top cover process, is to let them know that they're being recorded. So if you're calling a GP, I think it's just professional courtesy to once you've done the, uh, you know, this is who I am, this is why I'm calling before I start my spiel, just to let you know, this is a recorded line. I think just think that's professional courtesy. But uh, if it's a, a an internal top cover process, then um, then the advisor will know they're being recorded. And you too just bear in mind that uh, you're being recorded as well so moving on then some other human factors things to consider you need to be careful we've already kind of covered this but you need to be careful not to lead the advisor so clearly you've got a plan in your mind and clearly you've got something that you want to enact but you need to find the balance and this can be quite difficult you need to find the balance between being to the point and being concise without giving superfluous irrelevant information but also not misleading them and just strongly consider whether or not there's any bias in your own decision making is there is there a bit of information that's been causing you a dilemma that you really wish wasn't there because it makes the decision harder well you need to make sure you're giving all of that over on on the line so that the advisor can make a fully informed decision with you excellent well that brings us towards the end of a of another podcast and here was us thinking that this was going to be a really easy win and wasn't going to give me hours and hours of editing but yet again we've managed to waffle on and and fill a good bit of time your your fiance does need some time on her own so me and alex you know did did agree with her that we would distract you for a couple of hours <laughs> is that is that what it is she's got to have yeah. she's got to have two hours undisturbed a month in order to yeah, put we up said, with me. We, we said 30 minutes wasn't good enough so uh, you know we had to give you a few hours of editing <laughs> oh well that's very kind she i'm sure you're your checks in the post right so let's summarize remember Asking for advice poorly is asking for poor advice. Good remote clinical advice starts with you, and it starts before you've even made the call. Go somewhere quiet, think about what you want to achieve from the call, and remember, this shouldn't be too much, and ideally it shouldn't be too complex. The more complex the decision you're asking the advisor to make, the more likely it is to be rejected. This should absolutely be on a recorded line, which your service should provide you access to. I personally think it's professional courtesy to let the clinician know that the line's been recorded, if you wouldn't already expect them to know this. Introduce yourself, explain why you're calling, and how you want the advisor to help you. Use a structured delivery tool like ISPAR and slow down your delivery. Finish with your recommendation. This is a really important tool to help the advisor see if you're in the same ballpark together or if their picture is way out in left field compared to yours. This is important information to help them support your decision. Finally, offer to repeat anything. Finally, offer to repeat anything. And be patient whilst please, the advisor clarifies. 
Please tell me that. Please tell me that bit about repeating was done on purpose twice. Because that's, that's can you can you do that? Because that is that is honestly that's hilarious. Uh, no, that was that was not done on purpose. <laughs> Make sure that you offer to repeat anything and be patient whilst the advisor clarifies their understanding with you. And remember, primacy of clinical responsibility sits with you. Support for your clinical decision is strengthened with senior advice, but it doesn't absolve you of a bad decision. Equally, you need to understand the limitations of remote advice. Ultimately, they're bound by the information you give them, so it needs to be accurate, to the point, and not misleading. There's not a huge amount for us to reference this month because it's mostly been our opinions and and our experience, but you can find the full back catalogue of our articles, references, and previous podcasts on our website, generalbroadcast.org. UK. So that's all for this month. Thanks very much for listening and join us next month. Hold up. 